Joe Blair, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, friends of the Rockney Cats, you guys are in for a real treat. Um, I have Joe Blair with me. Um, he is the author of By the Iowa Sea. This is like one of the best books I've ever read. And I'm, it's not just because he's a guest on my, on my podcast. It's not just because I personally know him. Um, I just finished reading this book two or three months ago. And it, it, it really is, is just a, a, a book of incredible beauty. Joe Blair is so many different things. Um, he has extensive experience as an air conditioning repairman. He is formerly a member of the Pipe Fitters Union. But I think most importantly, he's just an incredible writing writer. Uh, the book By the Iowa Sea is about the, his experiences during the flood in Iowa City in 2008. Um, it came out in 2013. Friends, buy this book. It is so good. It covers his early dreams, his uh, middle age. It covers in great detail an affair that he had and the aftermath. Um, it also covers um, his, the difficult and the challenging relationship he has with his, his son, Michael, who's autistic um, and frequently suffers seizures. So he gets into some painful moments there. It just covers so much. And I, I think we're going to give the book a, uh, away a little bit, but it even has a very happy ending. Um, you know, I just want to quick re, uh, read a review that in the New York Times that I just, I, I couldn't believe how good it was. And this, I, I share this writer's view almost to a point. It says that this book is, uh, Joe Blair is a memoirist with a poet's soul. Blair takes what is arguably the most exploited natural resources, resource and replenishes it. Blair has an autistic son, Michael. It is their love story, but more than that, between Blair and his wife, that lends the tempest and its long-for destructiveness, their emotional balance, and this memoir and its observational virtuosity. And I have to wholeheartedly con concur, Joe. Um, the memoir, you know, I don't, I'm sort of like a nonfiction history guy. I'm not really a memoir guy. So I did not know what to expect. But once I started reading this book, I literally could not push it down. I put it down. And in preparing for this podcast, I think I told you, it's one of these books you got to read three or four or five times just because there's so much to unpack there. So um, that is my introduction uh, for Joe Blair. But just you tell me a little bit about yourself. Who is Joe Blair? Where do you come from? And how the hell did you get to Iowa City area? Well, um, I spent the first 30 years of my life in, uh, on the East Coast, um, mainly in Massachusetts. Um, actually, there's, there's a Red Sox game on as we speak. I checked the score, and they're down two runs to the Rays, which kills me. This is but, real uh, sacrifice, Joe. I really appreciate it. Well, it's all right. If they lose, I'll be I'm better off doing this. Okay. Uh, but I was very happy that they beat the Yankees a couple nights ago. Anyway, yeah, exactly. first 30 years of my life out there. And uh, I tried to go, to go to college right out of high school. And I, let's see. At first, I wanted to be a what? Uh, <laughs> a meteorologist and uh so i started taking those courses and i realized you had to be really smart to be a meteorologist you had to take a lot of tough courses and i'm like well fuck that you know i want to 
I want to have fun. I don't, I don't want to, I thought meteorology would be fun. Actually, what I really wanted was to, I wanted to be a forest ranger. Ooh, nice. I know, but everyone said, no way. There's, you're never going to get a job. And, and there was no may. Well, we had to go to state school. That's what my parents were willing to put the bill for, at least for one year. Long story short, I dropped out and I ended up changing. Uh, I got my old man, my father, set me up with a job changing air filters at this company in South Boston. And I was from the suburbs. I was from uh, a little town called Westford, which is near Lowell. It's uh, It was kind of a bedroom community. Um, I, I was 19. I didn't know my way around the city. But I got this job. My job was um, I had to change air filters, like all around Boston. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to Charlestown and pick up the air filters in, the, in my cube van and then drive, like, to Hingham, to Revere, to Peabody, to Burlington, to Boston, to the North End, to wherever, find my way. We had, like, at the time, we had these map books, you know, no GPS and no telephone like I'm fucking trying to find my way around Boston. If any of you guys have driven around Boston, you know it's not good. Well, there's no east and west and north and south. There's there's like the roads are all over the place. There's no grid except in the back bay. And uh it's hard to learn. So you, you end up learning by like like a building. You oh, I remember that building. Oh, at this building I got to take a left and then I can see the proof over there. That means it's over here. And it was, for me, I was just a kid. And I learned my way around the city. And I went all kinds of places. I went to, like, you know, candy factories. I went to, like, gelat- a gelatin factory in Worcester. Hmm. Uh, we, you know, you went to the docks. Down in the docks, we had to work up on top of the uh, cranes for the yeah. docks you know they go back and forth it was freaking cool it was like awesome i got to be in all these places that you know i i never would have gotten to be in and that's where how he started started in the trade hvac trade and and it was like way better than sitting in school totally and and you yeah. know one of my first memories i don't know we haven't shared this yet but how you and i actually know each other um, I formerly served on the Iowa City Council. Um, in 2013, I ran and I lost. Um, got close, but not close enough. And so Larry Baker, uh, another writer, um, well-respected writer here in the city of Iowa City. Larry I mean, Baker? What? I think he's well-respected, isn't he? I don't know. Who, who is that guy? Who's Larry Baker? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> apparently not good enough to be on this particular podcast. But He didn't want to come on? He, he, he didn't. He didn't. So Larry told, didn't want him on. That's an outrage. I, I told Larry only the creme de la creme. Um, I had Professor Robert Schultz of the University of Roanoke, a professor of English. Now I got Joe Blair. I mean, I got all these rock oh, stars. And, and Baker won't show up. And, and, and Yale Cohen, uh, I, I don't know. I, what would Yale have to say? Because he hasn't really written anything. You didn't want to be on him either? Well, no. He, I didn't invite him because eh, I don't know about Cohen. I don't know about him. But uh, so Larry, this, this so-called writer in the city of Iowa City, just kidding, friends, he's a really good writer, but we got to give him some crap. So Larry has this, this event and you're there 
Um, and I didn't know who you were. And you just started reading. And the reason why I bring, made me think of that, and this was at um, Wild Bill's coffee shop where they sort of would do readings and stuff like this. But your mastery of detail, um, which to me really distinguishes great writers from average writers. You know, I'm like a guy who can strum some chords on a guitar. And then I see professional writers, they sort of take you there. And I think of your experiences growing up in, in near Boston and just the, the variety of experiences that you had had to come into play in terms of your formation as a writer, because this also sets the stage for the beginning of your book, which is where you met Deb, um, who, who now currently is your wife, but when you met at University of Massachusetts Lowell is my understanding. Is that, yeah. is yeah. that right? So what, what was Deb's maiden name? And get a little bit into terms of one, the impact that your life experience have in terms of your style as a writer in terms of the intense detail was Kerouac from Boston for some reason I was thinking he was from these from Lowell. Oh, from Lowell. he's from Lowell well I, I mean no wonder you you sort of he's my hero oh yeah so I I was thinking you're sort of Kerouac-ish so now I know why um but just with the experiences that you have in terms of your detail your influences in terms of Kerouac and then secondly Take us to when you met Deb, because this really is a love story, this incredible love story, a lifelong love story with Deb um, at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Debbie Murray, her name was Debbie Murray. Debbie Murray. Yeah, she was hot. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it funny how, how like hot women can be with average looking guys? Like, I, I don't know what? how what that is. What do you what? mean? Well, well, I mean, well, look <laughs> at me. You know, look, look at me. I think Ron Clark is after. You're a fella. No, <laughs> Debbie. You got charisma. We got both got charisma, right? I mean, you and I, right? We got some charisma. You gotta, yeah, we, we got to make up for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that's the thing with guys. You got to have some charisma. We got to have some panache. But so, yeah. Deb, you meet at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. And that's the beginning of your love story. Yeah, she, she, uh, um, what was it? I think I, I asked her out and you know, she told me she was going to be at a, at a, I asked her out and she said she'd go and then she didn't show. <laughs> and then, and then she's like, she started feeling guilty and she's like, I'll throw him a bone. And she goes, uh, yeah. I'm going to be at uh, this place, uh, this bar, whatever it was, on Thursday night at 8 o'clock if you want to show up. She didn't really talk like that because uh, she was from Minnesota. Oh, so good. She, she, had a Minnesota. she was from I Minnesota. I was going to say, you know, I'm from up near the Minnesota yeah. border. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know how to do the O's and stuff like that. She so, was so cute. No, but she, I really loved her accent. Which part of Minnesota was she from? She grew up north of, well, she, partly in Minneapolis and then partly uh, north of Minneapolis. Yeah, no, totally. That's definitely like Wobegon territory there, you know. But so, hey, by the way, accent wise, where the hell did your Boston accent go? Did, did they not have that in Western Massachusetts or, or Well, what? my parents, my parents were raised in the Midwest. Okay. And uh, I don't know what Freud would say about me marrying a woman from the Midwest. I, I can guess, but uh, my parents were raised in the Midwest. So 
but I was raised, I was born in New Hampshire and raised in Massachusetts. So I had a pretty heavy Boston accent when I was living there, yeah. but at home, no one had a Boston accent. So it kind of like, I just went to my 40th class reunion last couple weeks ago and it kind of comes back when you start talking to people and you start saying, uh, I don't know, it just comes back a little, but it goes away when I come back to Iowa. Well, you know, it's funny because I had two friends from Rhode Island when I was working out at Glacier National Park. And when they would start, when they were hanging out with each other, the accent would get thick. And then when they would start talking to me, their R's would come back. It'd be like, mm -hmm. hey, Rock, it's not beer, it's bad, beer. Yeah. Yes. And it's the beers and the bears, and you go broom the floor. So it's a little wait bit. A minute. Now, wait a minute. You, now, you left, I left you hanging on the story. Now, you just cut me off, and now oh, I got a oh. story about Deb. Oh, geez. Deb. Okay. All right. Yes. So she didn't show up. No. Yeah, she didn't show up. And then she invited, threw me a bone and said she was going to be at this place. And I didn't show up. I'm like, fuck you. Mm. You know, you're too good for me. You're going to throw me a bone. Mm. Fuck you. Mm. And then, so we were like, deal's off. You know, she she thinks she's too good for me. And of course, I insulted her because I didn't show up. And then I just, I had come, I had gone on a cross-country motorcycle trip. And we kind of saw each other at a party before we left. And she had this little red miniskirt on. And she seemed really nice. And we kind of talked to each other. And then I left on my trip. And she went to Europe on, in that same summer. Wow. So she went backpacking around Europe with a friend of hers. And, uh, and I just, I was just getting back from my motorcycle trip. And I had gotten back a little bit too late to sign up for classes. So I had to finagle my way in. But I came up, I remember coming up the hill near the library, O'Leary Library, and Debbie was walking, I called her Deb, she's walking with a friend. And I saw her, and I stopped, and she stopped, and I knew it. Wow. And I, I knew it, that I was, was going to marry this woman, if she'd have me. Even before she... And that was it. That was like a year, more than a year after we didn't go out. Okay. And then we got, we were married within three months. Wow. That's incredible. Well, and I, I hope it's okay. Can I just share a little bit of an extended passage about your decision to marry her? Because to me, this just shows your just incredible command of details. And this is one of my favorite passages. You say, um, we were never one for big decisions. Even marriage wasn't a decision we were qualified to make. Marriage was like everything else in our lives, just a thing that happened to us, an inevitable thing that overtook us, like aging or fog in the windows. It's not that we didn't love each other. We did. We just couldn't get enough of each other. We, went to, we, went, we wanted to be together at all times. On Sunday, we went to the, attend the Sergio Leone double feature at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square. After class, we wanted to sit together in the stairwells of 1950s buildings, the U Lowell campus, and look out at the black soap trees. We wanted to fish for carp together from the gravel parking lot to the Merrimack River, the rain dimpling the surface of the water. We wanted to eat teriyaki steak and cheese. 
who wanted to sleep together, either in her freezing cold tenement or in my stiflingly hot rent-controlled apartment in Cambridge, who wanted to eat chowder together at the Grog in Newburyport, then go out in the cold wind and swing on the swing set. Deb would scoot over and sit right next to me on the bench of the F-150. We'd drive to the country fair in Topsfield or to the mountains or to New Orleans and just everything just happened. Nothing we could do about it other than go out and buy a couple of gold rings. Do you want an inscription? Asked the jeweler. We, we can inscribe something inside if you'd like, the date maybe, or maybe a line of poetry. I'd like Deb in mine, I said. What do you want in yours and how about Joe? I'm like, whoa, man. When you're writing those passages, do you know that you've hit it? I, I mean, it's just sort of like, um, just, do, do you know how awesome that is? I mean, you do know, you know how awesome that is, but explain to me when you write something like that, do you know it, do you feel it? Or do you just realize it after the fact? Where is it? What? Well, there's the actual ring. Well, wait a minute, it still says Deb in there. I probably can't see it. Okay. Where is it? You probably, that's not it. Yeah, it uh, probably can't see it. But yeah, it says Deb. And uh, no, I, I don't, that's just the way it was. It's the way yeah. it was. I mean, yeah. that's the beauty of, uh, I, I've tried to write fiction and I can't. Uh, I can, you know, I can only write nonfiction because I don't have to wonder what, what happens next. Yeah. Because uh, I already know what, because it already happened. So all I have to do is make, arrange it and try to understand it. Try to understand it. Yeah. You know, this, that's what, I mean, that's what we do when we, when we, it's nighttime and it's time to go to bed and we kind of, we're too tired to read and we, and you go, what am I doing here? Yeah. You know, what, what am I here for? I know it sounds like it's sophomoric, but come on. These are the questions we we better fucking deal with. I mean, yeah. these are the things we, these existential questions. I mean, I, to, to, to write for me is just an observation of my life and, and the people that I love and the people I come across and, the things that I do and people I hate and the it's like it's like a, an observation of it and, and a sort of a rearrangement of it um, I see a rearrangement it's an arrangement of it yeah you know I guess an editing is, would be a rearrangement and a rearrangement and a rearrangement so but uh I mean that Deb and I that when we first we went on a first date that I think it included the Topsfield Fair. We went why we watched the uh, horses pull those weights, um, that sled pull. That was fun. And that's when we first held hands out. While we watched, I reached over. I'm like, hmm. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to risk it. We held her hand. We went to, uh, we went to the grog at night. In Newburyport, and uh, we just went back there because Deb met me in Boston, and uh, for the reunion, and we went back to Newburyport, went to the Grog, and uh, it was nice. 
What, what is the grog? Is that like a bar? Is that like a bog or like, what it's, is it? It's a bar restaurant. It's like, it's been around forever. Okay. It's just been here forever. It probably has a lot of good warrant. Is it sort of like George's in Iowa City? Like everyone goes to? Yeah. And the waitress was salty and she was great. Oh, nice. Did she give you shit? Like, yeah, yeah perfect. Well, so this, yeah. Yeah, sort of you know, a good Iowa City waitress is going to give you some shit if she's any good. Um, so this is sort of the start of this incredible journey that you, you meet the, the woman of your dreams. Um, you love to do things together. And then as far as I can tell from the book, you start off on this great adventure. Um, and so tell me how on this great adventure you end up in Iowa. I mean, was it really because you just ran out of money or what, what happened? Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, we had our money. Deb earned a whole lot of money. She, and I earned a lot of money too. I was a journeyman. So at the time, I think way back then I was making 20 bucks an hour or something like that actually more and uh because i was getting paid under the table when i went back to school i my employer said hey i said look i'm going back to school mm -hmm. and he goes all right well i'll tell you what we'll just treat you like a subcontractor and he paid me under the table so i was making a bunch of money she was making a bunch of money waiting tables at legal seafood and uh we just kept all our money in it a jar up on top of the fridge and we just we had like seven eight thousand i think it's enough we thought hmm. and uh we just took the cash and hit the road and but deb i didn't know her very well because we'd only been seeing each other for three months already married and what i thought we were going to do was go on this like odyssey and camp yeah. Deb ain't camping. Huh. <laughs> that ain't happening. Totally get it. Yeah. All day on a bike. Deb's like, hey, first night we're in Vermont. And she goes, hey, all day. It's been a little cold. Let's get a hotel. I'm like, all right. I got here's a little shitty hotel. No, let's get a little better one. I'm like, all right, we'll get a better one. Took a bath. It was real nice. And okay, we can splurge the first night. Second night, same. Third night, same. Fourth night, same. Going into Canada, everything's twice as expensive. And uh, the money went away. And uh, and I thought we were going to make it all the way out to the West Coast. For some reason, I wanted to move to Portland. I had it in my mind that Portland was the place to go. But we didn't make it. We made it like not even halfway. Because we went up through Canada all the way up, and then we came back down and fucked around and spent a bunch of money. And, and I think we had about a thousand left when we were in Iowa, and we were camping out um, down at McBride, right on the lake. We didn't know we weren't supposed to. I I set up the tent right on the lake, even though you're not supposed to. But I didn't know we weren't supposed to. So, and uh, and I remember in the morning there was like people in a boat. And they were like staring at us. I'm like, what are you looking at? <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, we're in Iowa. We're not in Boston anymore. Yeah. Learn trying to kill me. So I had to chill out. And uh, 
we had a little over a thousand left and we thought, well, we can either get a place and stay here or we can go home. Those are our choices because we don't have enough money to get to the West Coast and get a place. So we said, fuck it. We rented a house, a little place for $400 a month, I think it was, and took a Greyhound home, got the pickup truck and loaded it up and came out. Wow. And did you, and I forgot, did you actually join the Iowa Writers Workshop? Were you a Writers Workshop person or not? I, I applied to the Poetry Workshop and I really can understand why they didn't accept me because I was a shitty poet. Hmm. and they don't accept shitty poets usually yeah, normal. and uh but it, i also applied to the nonfiction workshop and i i had written a lot more nonfiction at the time than poetry mm-hmm. and i think i was better at it and i got accepted into the nonfiction workshop after after being in iowa for two years we had a son at the time our first son and so you completed your writer's workshop um, education. Is it two years normally? Normally, I took like four or five. But okay, yeah. that that happens in Iowa City. And so, so, but sort of life then happens, as I understand it. You start having kids. Um, you take a job in HVAC um, because you had had some experience with that, and. You, you probably aren't writing as much as you had wanted. I mean, was there some longing about like, like I think I remember at the um, the event at Wild Bills, you had said that, you know, for a while you were golfing a lot um, and that you weren't really writing as much as you should. And Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I guess it's like writing like anything else, like being a musician or being an artist or painter or whatever it is. I mean, if something is one's passion and you take the chance and devote yourself to it you're taking the risk of failing at the thing that you care about the most and that's difficult to do so it's easier to uh, deny that thing and to say well look at all my responsibilities Mm -hmm. I never gave it my all. That's why I failed. Not, not that I tried as hard as I could and I gave it everything I had. And I, I was unable to do what, what I was, I, I've never, never been happy with what I've done. And in that way I've failed. It's yeah. that's difficult to do. And I think, I think, most writers will tell you, I mean, even on a day-to-day basis, I mean, to clear your mind and to start writing is a frightening thing. And it's like jumping in the ocean when it's cold. It's like, you don't want to do it. It's a lot easier to like play golf, uh, look at your internet, read a book, take a bath. I'm preparing. I'm preparing to write. I'm getting all my thoughts together, you know, but you got to start writing at some point. I think golf was a, a way of, uh, retreating from my responsibility to, uh, my art. To to your gift. Um, 
You know, I'm sure you're aware of the writer, Stephen Pressfield. Um, he always talks about the resistance. And one of the things I love about him is that he's like, hey, yeah, you can go pro, you can make it. But of course, the first 20 years of his career was utter and total, total failure, as far as I can tell. I mean, he wrote for 20 years before he even sold his first screenplay. And it was for like 4,000 bucks. But he talks about the resistance and just the difficulty of making yourself do it every day. There's a neuropsychologist, I think, called Andrew Huberman. And he talks about the biochemical thing happens when you get into a writing state. And he actually talks about it as a form of stress. That, that actually the stress hormones, the anxiety, you almost get a certain type of stress before you dive into that creative state. And it seems like that is almost what you're describing there is this sort of stress. And then when you write, you are revealing your soul. And there probably is a certain type of pain uh, there as you're getting it out, which is both cathartic, but it's probably tough to get into that emotional space. Well, I don't know. I, um, for some reason, I'm missing a, I'm missing a fucking gene or something. That doesn't stress you out. No, I mean, that's the only way to do it, in my opinion. It's like, I, I remember there was, I had a moment, like a lot of people have asked me about this book and like, oh, you put in that part where my wife has a period and we had sex. And I'm like, I don't even like to talk about it. I don't like to hear about it. I'm sorry I did it. But, you know, I remember smoking a cigarette and sitting, again, leaning against my truck down at City Park in Iowa City. And I knew there are two sections in this book I should cut that were embarrassing or would embarrass the reader. But I, and I, I knew I should, like it would be the, like, I guess, socially acceptable thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I said, I can't do it. I'm not doing it because because I just, it, it, it seems like if you're not going to, I felt like it was something I had to say. It was like part of it. And I, I had to do it because I think it was like, I felt like a, a responsibility not to the reader or not to myself or not to anybody, but a responsibility to the book. I'm like, fuck it. If no one likes it, no one likes it, but oh. I'm doing it. And, and it's, I feel the same way when I write. It's like, okay, if I'm going to like write something that's sort of like, if I'm sitting there writing and I'm going, oh my God, I, I'm going to write something and people are going to love this. Oh, oh, uh, let's see. What would they love? What would be really, what would they really think was good? You know, it's going to suck. You know, it's going to be the worst writing you've ever done. And or if you're writing something and saying, well, I know that I, in this situation, was a fool, that I was immature, that I was wrong, that I was a human being, in other words. But I don't really want to say that because it makes me look weak and it makes me look stupid. I'm going to say something that makes me look really cool and good, like a hero. Well, then you become the guy at the party that can't shut the fuck up 
about himself and mm-hmm. his kids. And every story he tells is about the end of it is how, how he did an awesome thing. And I can't, I don't know about you, but I, I can't wait to get away from that guy because he's a blowhard. Yeah. So I can't, I don't, I can't write like that. I don't want to write like that. And so it's all or nothing. And it doesn't really, I've gotten to the point where it doesn't bother me what people think. And it really honestly doesn't bother me if someone, you know, doesn't like something I wrote, like, or doesn't want to publish something I wrote. It doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, I'm 59. I'm, I got one foot in the grave and I got a few more years and then I'll be gone. So whatever, you know, but I, I gotta, I gotta say it the best way I can say it. And that's, that's my gift to myself. And that's that's what I got to do. So, well, and that's why your writing is like a blowtorch. I mean, it's like your hair as a reader, it's fun, you know, it's one thing to have the intent, but as a reader, it's like your hair stands up on end in some passages. You're like, holy cow, like, I can't believe he's describing that. But so let's set the stage for the affair that you had, which is a central part of the book. It's not a secret. Most affairs are secret. Yours was not. It was published. Let's talk about sort of a little emotional aspect you had before the affair occurred. You talked about life being as a form of hypnosis. I think it's especially true with middle age. You write, life can hypnotize you into thinking you have no choice, that you're trapped. You have a mortgage, you have a job, you have a wife, you have children, one of whom will never address himself, never hold a conversation, never hold, a, never fall in love and will provide, this will be your life. What choice do you have in the matter? Things will always be this way, almost as if you're trapped. And it's right about that time when you're, affair, at least in terms of the book, with with Pamela emerges. So any connection between the two or what what was happening? And normally I would not want to ask such personal questions, but it's all in the book. So um, what what, what was happening that led to the affair? Uh, Because that is really a central part of the book. Was it just sort of like crisis or shared love of writing? Because I understand Pamela was a wonderful writer. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, you, you know that in in having kids is one thing. It's it's hard, you know. Being married's hard. You know, going to work every day is hard. Uh, but it's something we all do. Mm-hmm. We all have our crosses to bear. Um, and we had a little bit uh, more. Um, honest than some families, you know, having a kid like Mike, uh, special needs kid, uh, autistic, can't speak, um, you know, had, had some behavior issues and a lot of medical uh, issues. It, it uh, breaks up most marriages. And I think it breaks up most marriages because it tests us. Um, 
men, I don't want to make generalizations, but I mean, most kids like Mike, they end up being taken care of by their moms mm-hmm. and the dads are gone <laughs> uh, in the marriage because I think men are more selfish in general. I know that's not cool to say, but I think watching Deb uh, raise these kids, their, you know, their um, happiness, their safety, their well-being, their emotional uh, health, um, their education, their physical health, it was paramount you know to her it was it was like number one thing that she cared about was her his was them and guys often myself i'm like i'm like i i don't know what's wrong with my driver i mean i keep on fading it like why am i fading my drive it that bumps me out my putting's okay if i could get off the tee I would be in the low 70s all the time. And I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that fade out of my drive. Or you obsess on uh, stupid shit like watching sports or is, or like money, making money or some stupid shit. Well, I obsessed on a woman, you know, and this, uh, and it was a it was a, a way, you know, in a way it was like a dramatic, like like a, a dramatic way to escape everything. Yeah. It was like a, the red button that you never push. Don't push the red button. Never push the red button, says Big Bugs Bunny. But hmm. I did, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, this way I won't have a marriage. I won't have to take care of Mike anymore my kids will be, it'll be beyond my control. Maybe I'll see him once a week or something, but yeah. you know, it would, I was, I was immature. I was unready for, for Mike. Yeah. I was unready. I was unready. I, I failed this test and, and I, it was an escape hatch. You know, I'm not saying that I wasn't, attracted to this woman and that I didn't think she was smart and intelligent and interesting and funny and all these things. Yeah, I did. But so was my wife, (laughs) you know, what was I doing? I was, I was trying to escape, you know, and uh, I was a coward. And uh, I think I had a, a reckoning. It's like, you say, if I, if I have this challenge, if I have this kid and, and I abandon this kid, like, what, who am I then? Who am I? You know, I'm, it's, it, well, how would I define myself then? And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I can't do it. You know, I, I, uh, 
it was a reckoning I had to come to. It was like I hadn't made a choice in my life. Everything was an avoidance. Even my marriage was just a, something like a thing I fell into. Yeah. And I had to make a choice. And I'm sure with her doing the lion's share of the work, um, she could maybe be pointed or you, know, you can maybe get defensive saying, hey, I'm working all day. I don't have time to take care of Mike. And I know there's one point where you're like, hey, I want to go back to, to, to New England. Um, I want the snowy winters, the hot summers, the beautiful barns, the, the literary scene, the, the bubbling brooks, the Norman Rockwell. And she essentially is like, get a hold of yourself, Joe. We got, we got kids. She's almost like, grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she and she basically kicks your ass a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So that is that develops. And I just as an aside, did Pamela is that actually her name? Did she know you were going to write this book? Um, what's the deal mm-hmm. there? Like I, I'm curious about that with Pamela. Um, what's her? You know? No, she... that's not her name. And okay. And I had to. I had to change about everything about her, including the car she drove and okay. everything. Okay. Well, we'll keep so her. That's what the lawyers, the lawyers talk to me and, you know, it's only right. You know, I, yeah. I, I mean, you don't want to blow the whistle on somebody. Yes. You know, and I, I haven't told anybody who it was and only the people that knew when it was going on. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know, it's a sh- it's a shitty thing to do to somebody, and that's you know, I I regret it anyway. Yeah. Well, I think one of the most beautiful parts of the book is how you and Deb reconciled. Uh, it was not in this dramatic her yelling at you. It was not. Um, she, she basically comes up to you and she says, Joe, um, I, I forgive you. Have the relationship if that's what you need right now, but I'll still, still, still be there. And as far as I can tell, that is sort of what opens everything up. Uh, I think that's one of the most miraculous parts of the book. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Isn't that sort of what happened? She was like, and yeah. she probably engaged in her own introspection, like, hey, you know, maybe I did make some mistakes along that's the way. That's right. I mean, of course, it was wasn't just me. Mm-hmm. You know, I I want to take it all myself all the time like that. But you know, any of course, any marriage is between two people. It's not between me and myself. And Deb, what I wanted, you know, just because you got a kid like Mike, it doesn't mean and three other kids. It doesn't mean that you're immune to like romance. Like yes. you don't want to, it doesn't matter to you whether you're in love with your wife or that you're in love with someone. Do you have love? And what I wanted from Deb, when I was asking her to move away with me, all I wanted was for her to say, I will run away with you again. Yeah. You know what I mean? She did it with me when we came out to Iowa. All I wanted was for her to say, yeah, let's go. And, and she does give that to you, doesn't she? Did again, I read that right? Again, that, that was where, when she, that was when we reconciled. You know, she said, okay. 
let's do it. And we did it. And then, uh, you know, and this is, hey, man, this is like one incident in a 30-year marriage so far. Yeah. So this is, you know, it's not like the beginning and the end. It's like a thing, you know. Life goes on. We've gone through a lot of uh, things. You know, marriage is a motherfucker. It's hard. Yeah. I I know I'm, I want to explain this to you because I know you don't know. I'm just kidding. Marriage is hard. I know. I know. It's it's Uh, hard. Needless to say, I I don't know how anybody does it. My outcome was not the same. Well, I, I do think, though, I think one of the hardest, so let me go back to your start of your career, and I'm going to tie in a Jim Carrey speech. That famous graduation speech that he gave was, there's sort of two things that you get in the educational process. One is, follow your dreams. You can be anything you want to be. There's this inspirational thing, but shortly thereafter that, be practical, be an accountant, be a you know, a lawyer. And granted, I'm a lawyer. So we need lawyers. We need account. And I love accountants. I'm not a good one, but you know, don't follow your dream and let fear drive. And uh, the, that sort of Jim Carrey speech that I think he gave at MUM University in Fairfield, where he said, you know, my dad became an accountant and he lost his job. So I figured if I was going to fail, I might as well fail doing something I actually loved. Um, and so it's my understanding that you are going to give it within the last month or two, uh, a full full court press on your passion. And I wanted to touch base a little bit. I think the best part of your book is your definition, your reminder of what passion means in Latin. It is kind of a burden. So if you could just elaborate on that, because I think that is one of the best insights of the book, passion as suffering. Can you, can you elaborate on that and, and connecting it to your craft? Well, you know, yeah, the, well, the passion, passions, and it's like one of those words that's, we don't, it's like we throw it around a lot, but we don't really attach, um, we don't know what meaning to attach to it. I mean, we, we want to think that it's, that it's like, I love you. Okay, thank you. No. I passionately love you. Okay, thanks. I have a passion for you. I have a passion. Okay, I get it. But it's not like an easy, it's like love. It's not an, it's not an easy thing. It's, it's suffering. It's, it's torture. It's painful. It's, you know, the passion of the Christ is, uh, crucifixion it's um um it takes a lot um out of you um but i think it's it's like box the joy of man's desiring you know that if i do yeah it's like the joy of man's desiring yeah it's like that it's it's like mixed with desire and it's mixed with something that ineffable you know yeah. like i don't know how to put words to it but you all you all know i mean it, it's 
it's it's what makes life worth living and uh you know i'm 59 now and i've been in the trade for 40 years and uh worked my way through school worked my way through everything and i could keep on doing it for another 10 years that would be 50 years um but, you know, I'm not getting any more acute mentally uh, or physically. And, you know, right now my kids are moved out. My daughter just moved home, so they're not really moved out. She's dating some knucklehead. He's not a knucklehead. He's a nice guy. Every son in law is a little He's bit a nice of a Maybe a little bit of a knucklehead. But they right? don't do trouble. Yeah, well, Cole will rough him up if he strays at all. So. But now is the time. So I, I just took a year off. I, I'm about a month into it. And uh, I'm just going to write every day. I'm going to try. You know, it's that it's that reckoning again. So I'm going to do my best and either I, 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 happens, you know. I love it. And, you know, you talk about when you're talking about passion being suffering, it literally means that in Latin. You quote in the book, it means passionum, suffering, enduring. And this question of, I'm sure you've seen the movie Stone Reader, the, you know, the, the Dow Mossman, where he writes that one great book. And there's so many good parts of that movie, uh, Stone Reader, um, about Stones of Summer. But for me, the most incredible part of it is just the suffering. I mean, he wrote this one great book and then couldn't write another. Um, and I just think it really shows when you're diving deep into the soul, like how the great how beauty, the great yeah. beauty, the same story. Yeah. No, love exactly. that's my favorite movie. One of my favorite movies. I fucking love that movie. No, I, it's like, I, I writes this book and the years go by and well, that's it. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. well, I, I love it. And I love the, I think Dow eventually moved to decor in my hometown. So that's sort of another interesting aside with that. So that's, oh yeah, Decorah, I mean, Toppling Goliath, Pulpit Rock, which by the way, for people not from Decorah, Pulpit Rock's way better. So I don't mean to cause any controversy, but. Uh, I take care of, uh, I take care of the air conditioning at Luther. I take care of the refrigeration of Pulpit Rock. No, not Pulpit Rock at uh, Toppling, not Pulpit Rock. Okay, okay. Well, I oh. think Toppling's better. You like, you're more of a Toppling guy? Well, most people are. I take care of them, so I think they're better. I've oh, never okay. tasted <laughs> Pulpit Rock. You don't. You I don't want to. Tasted that swill. Oh, swill. It's one step up above Bush Light, but I mean, no. I mean, I. Actually, they're both really good. Um, so that's exciting, though, that you're actually going for it. You know, I'm. I'm into a lot of stoicism. If you've seen some of my podcasts, and one of the things they're they're so fucking obsessed with death, and people are like, oh, they're a bunch of killjoys, but no, they're basically saying like, you could die. You could die next year, Joe. And from this point to that, the Stoics, the joy that you get with it is, well, what would you do if you had a year left or two? When they you know, well, why, is that, why is that a killjoy? Why, why, like, why is being aware of death like a killjoy? I don't think it is. It's like, it's like you're, you're, you're awake and, and you go, well, shit, I got, it's fucking, uh, it's eight o'clock. You know, I'm going to be asleep in a couple hours. What do you want to do? Yeah. What, what's the difference? I mean, it's like an awareness that I'm going to sleep in a couple hours. So let's live. Let's not like be losers and like do completely nothing. Let's like do something. Let's 
I mean, even if it's like a movie we want, we want to watch that's really cool that we we or look or even a TV series that we're looking forward to. I love sitting there with my wife and uh, having my like one drink a night yeah. and watching a movie. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. So and 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 to live your life's purpose and to be a to live out your nature and. Joe Blair, you are a writer. Uh, you have an incredible gift, and I'm incredibly grateful that you're going to spend the rest of your working life channeling that gift and you know getting more work. And I'm definitely going to read your future books and, and broadcast about how awesome these books are. Um, so I want to give our, our, our listeners just sort of a send off here. Um, the Facebook post or the Facebook photo of you is you and your family um, at your child's wedding it's my understanding and it's such a cool way to end the movie because I told you like in our prep for this book or this interview it was almost like seeing the end of a movie where you have this dramatic movie and then at the very end you see the real life version but of course this is the real life you with the real life happy ending of you and your beautiful wife and your kids and Mike, it was so cool seeing Mike. Yeah. I'm hoping is if he's able to, can can he do a special appearance? Um, can you? Can I go get him? Yeah, certainly. So why don't I'll I just go. I'll just pause the the uh, um, video here a little bit, and then once he's back, we'll start again. Mike, how are you? This is Rockney Cole. It's, it's such a privilege to be able to meet you. Hey, Mike. Mike. You say hi. Hi, hi Mike. I. I am a huge fan of yours. I read about you in your dad's book and I am amazed at what you've been able to do and, and the different things that you and your dad do together. So uh, hey. thank you. Thank you so much, Mike, for being go. on the show. He wants to go. Oh, he wants to go. Okay. Well, Mike, thank, thank you so much for being on this hey. podcast. However briefly. Hey, thank, you. thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Well, th thanks so much. I, he is a huge part of the book and um, just a huge part of, uh, of, of everything that you shared. And, you know, I think a true writer does really bear his soul and you certainly did that. So, um, God, Joe, such an honor to talk to you. I feel like we've sort of come full circle um, to really talk to a sort of a world-class writer like yourself. I hope people get the chance to read this book um, buy it. It's it's by the eye with C, um, and who knows? I still think it should be made into a movie. You, you, uh, an option was made on it. Is that right? There was an option to the screenplay, or, or what's yeah, the status yeah. of that? It was, it's it's a million to one shot, you know. But you got an option on it though, right? I mean, yeah. I was thinking if Sam Shepard were still alive, holy shit! Yeah, Sam you know. Shepard. I would. I would. That would be cool. Oh my god, Sam Shepard. So I'm thinking, who should do it? But I'm like. This, I mean, how does so much garbage get made in Hollywood and this doesn't get made? I, I don't know. Who knows? I think maybe with Field of Dreams, maybe they'll be like, okay, it's sort of like as good as that, except it's the flood. But I hope it makes it into movie form so people can experience that people that who aren't readers. Um, and I guess just for our um, audience, what do you, what's up next for you? You're going to make a, an effort to make a go as a full-time writer. Are you working on some projects? What, what, what do you got going on uh, in the future? And what, what can we look forward to in terms of your writing career? Yeah, well, what I guess 
a full-time writer means to me is uh, I get to wake up in the morning, I get to have a cup of coffee, I get to read the New Yorker, I get to read a little bit of Times, talk to my wife, and then write an essay in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I get to edit the essay. And then I get to send something out somewhere. And that's what being a full-time writer looks like for me. Uh, I'm also putting together two books. One of them I already put together. Uh, it's called The Mechanic. Um, it's about a mechanic who can't fix anything. Hmm. Uh, it's nonfiction. Yeah, that's me. The mechanic and uh, the other one's about a bike trip i'm an identical twin oh, and the other one's uh about a motorcycle trip i took with my brother last spring uh cool. it's about it's about uh um uh, learning to love yourself which yeah. in my case in the book it's learning to love my brother yeah so well, wow, I'm I'm really pumped, and I think you know I could also see you being a you know travel writer in terms of just sharing your experience, your attention, detail, and I keep on trying to get you to write an Iowa noir book about like a real life. I'm a big time paper. noir. I'm a big time Chandler fan. I, uh, I, it would take place. It'd be like Winter's Bone. It'd be it'd take place in a Tumwa, some down on his luck sheriff's deputy that comes across the body laying in the bottom of a ditch. And there's like some meth head dealer. Yeah. It's like a mix of Breaking Bad meets Winter's Bone. You could even invite Cone to, to volunteer. You know, Baker might be too snooty to even help out, but Baker could be the Baker could be the sheriff. <laughs> I'd be like, is it our time, Sheriff? Is it our time? <laughs> yeah, but you're like, ah, the hell with Baker. He looks too much like, you know, Kenny Rogers. <laughs> so you know, it's too, it's not really realistic enough. So be good, Sheriff. Yeah, well, maybe Baker will get on one of these times, but um, but in any event, Joe, well, thank Cone you. Is a, uh, Cone's going to be the bartender, is what Cone's going to be. <laughs> well, I, I think Cone needs to write a novel, too. I have all these people. I'm like, write your fucking novel. He's a good novel. writer. Oh, he's a good writer. yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he can, he's like Studs Terkel. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. So, Joe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, total uh, honor to be able to talk to you. I'm really excited to see what you have going on. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you have in, uh, in, in, your, in your future writing career. All right, man. Well, thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Thanks. Joe. Until Thank next you. time, friends of the Rocky Cast. All, All right, right, man. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.